The following recording may contain explicit language. I can't get more explicit than may. Let's just say it may. It's Monday, July 1st, 2019 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Some second quarter political fundraising numbers are rolling in, not just rolling in, sloshing around, money being the lifeblood of politics. What other cliches you got? But also what her burn rate looks like, because we saw in quarter one just how much money her campaign was spending, and all of it was going to ground game in places like Iowa. Thank you, Ali Vitale on MSNBC. What have you got, Politico's Melanie Zanona? And something else that it does, it gives them the ability to build this infrastructure, put boots on the ground. Woohoo! Okay. All of that was anodyne, or how should I say it? Yes, garden variety. But in all seriousness, this next phrase bothered me. Something else that's really significant about these numbers, I think that it shows that even though he's sort of dealing with some heat back home for how he's handled the shooting with yeah. a black man involving a police officer, it's, so far it's not affecting him, at least nationally. And I think these numbers really enforce that. Sort of dealing with the heat back home, dealing with the shooting of a black man involving a police officer. I think the word you're looking for is by. The shooting of a black man by a police officer. And though you've heard me expound upon this, and last week I didn't come out just crucifying Pete Buttigieg's handling of this. The theory is that being the mayor of a big city is really hard, and every mayor of a sizable city has to deal with shootings and issues of mostly white police forces killing black citizens. That goes on all the time. I do think such an observation phrased that way enforces everything we knew to be true about this specific case, which is that the national media cares about the actual fact of an actual cop killing an actual suspect in the actual city of South Bend. They care about that, not because of the cop or the suspect or South Bend. Most of the national media was only interested because it made more exciting their real story, which is the young candidate facing his first test. Actual death, actual person, actual police, actual racial issues. You know what that is? That is a backdrop. In narrative terms, it would be considered the stakes. If I could give that reporter... Melanie Zanona back those words. I'm sure she would come up with a way that expressed a bit more care and concern for the actual life lost and the issue raised. But really, the motivations of national political reporters are so very, very clear. Black man dead, white cop shooter. What does it mean for Pete? What does it mean for Mayor Pete? Pretty much just about Pete. And how do we get an answer to what it means? Well, quite clearly, it's the amount of money he raised this quarter, $25 million. So I guess that's all we need to know about that. On the show today, I spiel about a choice that Democrats have. Do you go with an exciting candidate who could turn out enthusiastic voters? Or do you go with the steady hand who can reassure the once Obama voters who defected to Trump? It seems like a conundrum, but it's really quite humdrum. But first, I am a dad. I make jokes. Somehow... As I've been pursuing both of these passions, lo, these last 12 years, I've been tarred with an accusation that I engage in a thing called dad jokes. What are these dad jokes of which you speak? I know good jokes. I know bad jokes. I know pun jokes. I know bad pun jokes. But dad jokes? Why do we call them dad jokes? What purpose do they serve? And most importantly, what do you call a man with no body, but also no nose? The answer to all these questions, nobody knows. Except perhaps for Jason Zinneman. He covers comedy for the New York Times. And he also covers the institution of the dad joke with me. Up next. 
So there's very few issues that get me going as much as the idea of the dad joke, which I think, and I, that my taxonomy of it is I place it as a subcategory of pun. But we're going to get to this in an interview, in a discussion. I'm so excited to have a grand theory of dad jokes. And joining me is Jason Zinneman, who covers comedy and just thought in general, the life of the mind for the New York Times. He wrote about dad jokes. Jason, thanks for coming in. So great to be here. This got a great reaction, right? Your column on dad jokes? It did. It did. Probably it got more feedback than any, probably any story I've written this year. Uh huh. Mostly like guys and balding guys in cargo shorts. A lot Could of those. Over the internet? <laughs> I got stopped at like my kid's school a few times and got like some knowing, you know, nods and <laughs> handshakes and I, I feel scenes you know um and then like it's been a big problem the this, invisible dad it yeah. really is it really is finally fine but and also like you know moms in south dakota and you know grandparents who miss joking with their kids people had emotional yeah. sh schmaltzy reactions to this in a way that frankly made me a little uncomfortable yeah you basically <laughs> just put your finger on billy crystal's career yeah. so so i want to ask you what the theory is but let's define it first and maybe there's a little bit of uh disagreement about what is a dad joke it is i'll define it as something like a corny joke that often involves wordplay, but the f a fundamental part of it is that the father says it to torture the children. Yeah, I think that, well, here, I think the definition's a little bit like defining horror film. There's mm -hmm. no one right answer, right? And in fact, in the weeks before I wrote this, I, I have two kids, five and 10, and I, I asked as many of their friends as possible to define dad joke for me. So, yeah. And I kind of feel like, like I trust them uh, better than I do anyone else. And almost all of them, the first response is a bad joke. And on some level, we can, we can get more complicated. That's what a dad joke is, a bad joke. The second word you heard is embarrassing, right? It's to a, who? To them. Yeah. To them. <laughs> to the so it's, a, it's yeah. a joke that embarrasses them, right? Now, so I think that's like the fundamentals of dad joke. But then you're, you're getting more sophisticated on it. Like when you get into really more detail, all right, what are the examples of dad jokes? If you read all these books about dad jokes and you hear people, they're, t they're quite often puns, mm -hmm. right? The most disrespected of jokes. Horribly so. Um, and, Tragically so. <laughs> but, and, or, you know, some kinds of play on words. And I think also underrated is uh, scatological. Mm -hmm. There's a, not not in a very mild way, mild scatological jokes. I think it's a, one that was, a, what is two butts and kills people and assassin, right? The, uh, assassin, that, that's yeah. a classic dad joke because it involves butts. Mm -hmm. It's not really obscene, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> it involves butts, it involves a pun. Uh, it's quick. I think there's also, you can make some other generally, most of them are short. They, they're, they require no context setting. Um, they're, uh, and a lot of them are familiar. They're jokes that have been told over and over and over again. Right. They're kind of, there's this tradition of them. And I would just say one other thing is that there's many reasons why I wrote this piece, but one of which is that I realized that, you know, dads have been telling terrible jokes forever. But the term dad joke hasn't been around forever. Mm -hmm. When I had my first kid 10 years ago, it wasn't a thing you heard. It wasn't. It's only in the last couple of years. And this I find really interesting. And one thing that piece doesn't really answer is why that now this has become a term. Yeah. And, you know, I have various theories on that. But I think that 
you know, the term dad joke is really something that's become popular in the last four or five years. And it's become kind of a genre of, it, of itself. I think it probably tracks the rise of the mom genes and the dad genes and the fact that uh, what was once the figure of respect or nominal respect, you know, father knows best, that title was a bit of an ironic title. Mm. However, uh, so, so it tracks that and we're labeling things more and we're better, you know, everything, everything gets named and possibly shamed. But I think a big part of it is that what was once the default, so you don't name, you don't have to name oxygen, right? You don't Mm -hmm. have a special name for that. So it was just the default. It was just jokes. And then as other kinds of humor got a lot bigger and more attention, this, what was the default kind of humor became a niche and that, and you always name a niche. Yes. Yes. No, I, um, one of my theories of this dad joke, and this is a piece I've been thinking about for years, is I'm obsessed with the period in comedy in like the middle and early part of the last century mm-hmm. when originality was not, there wasn't a premium on originality for professional comics, right? These people you saw at the Catskills, they told jokes that everyone else told, right? Yes. They did street jokes. Street jokes. What comedians tell now. Exactly. Right. It was not, it didn't matter if you, if you told if somebody else's joke. That wasn't what was important, right? Now, where did they get these jokes? Well, there were joke books, mm-hmm. right? And there was one guy who wrote, and I, I, you know, I read, I incessantly read comedian biographies. And then one guy kept coming up, Joan Rivers, Dick Gregory, all these, Steve Martin talks about him, is this guy Robert Orban, who's still alive, actually. Uh-huh. He's like 94 years old. And he was the king of these joke books. And I started collecting these joke books. And they're, they have these kind of old-fashioned drawings on them. And they're just page after page of jokes that now... See, look a little like dad jokes, and they're, they look like other things too. Because like, there's there's like blue jokes sometimes. So, was he an author or a curator? Was he Audubon or was he Darwin? Gr- great question, and I don't know for sure. My sense is he's a curator. Mm-hmm. Uh, he probably wrote some too. He he eventually once comedy. Well, it's almost sh- like an algorithm. Once you get the once you know how these things go, you could probably write your. Well, own. he has he he published book like book after book after book after book, and then when comedy shifted and it became you had your act that was from your point of view and. People started complaining more about people stealing jokes. He left and then became a speechwriter for for Gerald Ford. (laughs) (laughs) Hilarious politician. Um, So so one of my theories is that the dad joke is just, is actually nothing new. It's just a renaming of something that was always there and we always kind of liked against our will uh, or or for good or for guilty pleasure or not. And, you know, our love of those kind of quick pun jokes, which we used to see at the Catskills, still exist, except now we call them dad jokes. Yeah, and we denigrate them. And I think that we are so quick to groan or put them in this category that's not respected that there are good dad jokes and bad dad jokes. And, you know, I think a lot of people gloss over some real gems. Completely. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I guess this is the other point that I was really animated by is there's good things about bad jokes. Yeah. That, uh, you know, I've, there's some great pieces written over the years about the virtue of bad movies. Pauline Kael wrote a, uh, Jay Hoberman's written a great piece. And so I, I wanted to write something about 
what is good about bad jokes. And I think there's a lot of things good about bad jokes. And I think everyone kind of knows this. In one sense, jokes are an art, but there are more than that. There, uh, you know, there's something comforting about a bad joke. They, they do rely on rhythm. They do rely on a formula. Those things are, by definition, comforting. They unify us, I think, yes. in a way that good jokes don't. Like, uh, I, last time I was on the show, I talked about David Letterman. David Letterman would tell these very insidery jokes sometimes that would separate people who were in the know who got his sense of humor from people who were not, right? Mm-hmm. And bad jokes are the opposite. They unify everyone in groaning at this joke. Yeah. There's something about, particularly jad jokes, where you're very self-consciously telling something that you know is bad often. There's something, I think, very generous about them and democratic yes. <laughs> to you to be a li- about them. I, I, that's just one of the many things. I also think that, you know, humor is very subjective and what sometimes, you know, the line between good and bad is very thin. And, you know, what is, so like it gets to the question of like, well, what is badness in jokes? And, you know, one thing or art for that matter. One thing is most people agree on is hack, right? Mm -hmm. Cliche is bad, right? And that people think it's worse in comedy than in music. You want to see the Rolling Stones do their hits, but you don't want to see Chris Rock tell the same jokes. He told. That's the common wisdom. I disagree. (laughs) I, I think people do find comfort in hearing the same jokes they've heard a million times before. It operates in a slightly different way. And I've seen it too. If you go see Jim Gaffigan in concert, Jim Gaffigan tells this Hot Pockets joke. He has to. He yeah. has to. In yeah. the same way the Stones have to do, you know. <laughs> start me up. Yeah, start me up. It's It <laughs> operates the same way. It doesn't matter that the surprise is gone. Yeah. People get pleasure from hearing that Hot Pockets joke, even when they already know it. And I think it's interesting to look at why. I think that a couple other things going on. One, it used to be that the uh, societal default of the joke teller was a dad. And if not literally a dad, though often a dad, was the older straight white man, Mm. right? And it's not that that has totally exploded or even mostly exploded. Look at the late night hosts. But it has become much less true than it ever was. And that correlates at the same time to the naming and shaming of the dad joke. And I wonder what's going on there exactly. Well, there's a lot going on. And I think there's a dark view also of the dad joke, and I, I I sort of allude to this in the piece, which is that, you know, why isn't there a mom joke? Mm-hmm. Why why is there not moms? And I and you know some people would say, oh, you know, moms don't don't tell as bad jokes as, as dad do. I, I yeah. don't think that I think moms are just as corny as dads. And I do think there is something about the sort of cult. You know, as dads started to do more domestic roles. And I do think that is part of the reason the dad joke came about, that in a kind of public cultural sense, there it isn't like a not like Baby Boom or whatever that movie was in the 80s. Mm-hmm. The, Diane you, Keaton? That Diane yes. Keaton movie. You couldn't do that movie today and it'd be like, oh, this is a hilarious premise that a dad is taking over the kids. That's yeah. not a hilarious. That's, you know. Mr. Mom, what? <laughs> yeah, that's like. <laughs> Shopping. <laughs> <laughs> right, so like once dad started to, it, not, that stopped being startling, then you had to say, okay, what are are the cultural kind of cliches about fatherhood. Mm-hmm. And it is interesting to me, and perhaps there's, you know, that dad, even though they're bad jokes, there's like humor and fun where the kind of cultural, where there isn't the same running room for moms to have this cultural room of being, of joking and fun. And while there is, you know, 
these sort of stereotypes of like the scolding mom and the disciplinarian mom. I think there is something gendered about dad jokes that works against moms. Yeah. But at the same time, I think that the idea of dad jokes has become so huge, particularly on the internet. If you look at, uh, you just, if you just look at hashtag dad jokes any day of the week, it's just all over the place. Or anytime like somebody tells a bad joke in a famous person, the headline is someone tells a dad joke. It's transcended gender on some level. You made me realize something that comedy is very often about transgression, but when the white male dad transgresses, it's often two places that make us uncomfortable or in ways that we're not comfortable with. So what do they do? They retreat to the safety of the dad joke or we want them to retreat to the safety of the dad joke. And it's reinforcing. Like, who is mm. the, who is the person who we give less, the least allowance for transgression? Those are the very people making the stereotypical quote not funny bad jokes right right no i mean it's like a safety there's safety in it the is a safety joke. well there's a ritual to it right the male can make this joke and then it's an acceptable way to everyone to ridicule this person and for him to not have his ego bruised right now there's you could look at that in a number of different ways right and uh but I, I think there is, it, it's a very, it, it's a safe kind of ritualistic process, right? So among other, that's, that's the interesting thing about dad jokes. I think dad jokes are, there is a part of dad jokes that are art. There's a part of dad jokes that are ritual and kind of oral history and people passing. And then there's a part of dad jokes that are, there's something comforting and nostalgic what you're talking about. It operates on many levels. Okay, so in the end, do you want the dad joke to be rehabbed or does it serve, if you celebrate it as do I, does it serve our purposes better to have it be this denigrated thing? Yes, the latter. I want it to be dead. I love, I'm a big, you know, I wrote a book on horror movies and I, and in the 70s back when it was a disreputable genre. Yeah. And right now it has so much, it's it's suffocating on prestige. I love it. And I so love, what, what I really, when I see- Underground a whole, punk rock you know I, when getting I see, a display in the met it's dispiriting when i see a horror movie today and i usually can tell at the end there's like you watch a movie you're like i like this horror movie but you usually can tell by the way they end it if they wanted to get the good reviews and the prestige it has a tasteful ending yeah. with some missed you know with without any gore or a triumphant ending right, right. i don't want to see that you want i spit on your grave too. i want to spit <laughs> or at least night of living dead where like i mean look i love get out yeah. right i love get out but get out has a commercial non-horror ending yeah. get out which is very influenced by night of the living dead yeah right should the end the real horror ending is the policeman shows up right and shoots them yeah. right that's the shot that's the oh, ending. everyone dies or everyone yeah. dies that yeah. that would not be as commercial right but that would be more horrific and i would argue in keeping with the rest of that movie okay and then the, and there are there's increasing number of horror movies now that are going to try to be more commercial and they forgot the disreputable roots of it. And there's glory in those disreputable roots, just like there's in a totally different mode, there's wonderful things about the the badness of dad jokes. I don't want them to become, you know, a prestige, high class, reputable. I want them to hold on to some of their, 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 their clumsiness. Jason Zinneman covers comedy for the New York Times and is a father of two audience members. <laughs> Thank you, Jason. Thank you. Great to be here. And now the spiel. There is a debate within the Democratic Party, maybe the debate, 
about which is the right way to beat Donald Trump. Do you select a candidate who is appealing to the people who once voted for Trump, try to peel them away, and that you can convince those people to go back to Democrats because they were there once too? Or do you say those people are not our main concern? What we have to do is put forward a candidate who will be so exciting that citizens who sat out the 2016 election will show up and vote for this new, compelling, inspirational Democrat. It's often portrayed as a conundrum, an either-or, and most annoyingly, sometimes it's presented as a, hey, you could do both. You can have a candidate so unbelievably exciting that he or she will rouse the disaffected, but so reassuring that he or she will win back open-minded moderates. I don't think you can get both. But seriously, then you decide which strategy is better. Do you go with fireworks or foot rubs? Wowie zowie or easy does it? It all seems, like I said, back to the word conundrum, but it's not a conundrum. There is an answer, and I have the answer, and it's not an answer based on my opinion. It's an answer based on facts, statistics, study. I will give you the answer. You will thank me, and then I will complicate the answer a little bit, and you will also thank me, but in a well, I respect your commitment to complicating clear narratives, as opposed to the that's the answer. Thank God. I find that one to be a little more emotionally satisfying. Anyway, you know the kind of answers I give, and I'm going to give one of those answers, but I will give you an answer. So the tension between win the moderates versus get out the vote was on display on Meet the Press yesterday. First, moderator Chuck Todd read from a column written by the New York Times, David Brooks. Here's that. The debates illustrate the dilemma for moderate Democrats. If they take on progressives, they get squashed by the passionate intensity of the left. If they don't, the party moves so far left that it can't win in the fall. Right now, we've got two parties trying to make moderates homeless as somebody. Then, after hearing that, progressive pollster Cornell Belcher weighed in to downplay that David Brooks idea. Look, to all respect to, to, to Brooks, we don't need you. Right. We don't we don't need you. Right. We need to rebuild the Obama coalition. Right. So. So when you when you talk about who who's problematic and this is my problem with 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 Joe Biden, I fear with Joe Biden that he's Hillary 2.0. Chuck, I sat in focus group rooms with the younger uh, voters, particularly younger voters of color, and, and they brought up the super predator stuff with Hillary Clinton. Mm. And they said, we cannot, you know, they're not going to make the binary choice between lesser two evils. And I think the problem is Joe Biden becomes Hillary 2.0. We need a candidate who can inspire and build back those, bring back those young people and rebuild the Obama coalition, a majority coalition, back-to-back majorities built on young people and expanding the electorate, not going back to the 1992 campaign again. Okay. Now, in that Cornell Belcher answer, there was a little bit more static than in just the basic idea. It was a bit Biden slash Hillary focused. But the pure distillation of the idea that Belcher was championing was this that we do not need to convince those who defected to Trump in 2016 as much as we need to inspire those who sat out the election entirely. So is he right? He is not. I mean, he is right that an inspiring candidate will draw more people to vote, but an inspiring candidate to one side will probably piss off a lot of the other side so it might not be a net gain. And this is not an argument. This is not a thesis. I'm not going to lay abstract ideas on you to convince you. I'm just going to quote the actual 
results of what happened last time and a study of those results. So according to the American National Election Study, which is the gold standard of voter analysis, 13% of Trump voters had voted for Obama the last time and sometimes the last two times. By the way, sometimes we forget this. Some people did vote for Romney and then Hillary Clinton. They say about one in 20, 5% of the electorate were Romney-Clinton voters. Sounds weird, but that's what they found. So in studies like this and in books like a great book called Identity Crisis by the political scientists John Sides and Lynn Vavrick and Michael Tesler, and in surveys put together by the Democratic firm The Global Strategy Group, they find numbers vary a little, but by something like a two-to-one ratio, or the Global Strategy Group actually came up with 70% of Hillary Clinton's loss can be attributed to the Obama-Trump voter. Other things play a role too, including the people who sat it out because they were overall so uninspired. But again, the Obama-Trump voter, 70% of Hillary Clinton's loss. Obama-Trump voters do tend to cluster in the Rust Belt, which helped Trump with the Electoral College. Obama-Trump voters tend to be self-described political independents. There's even some evidence that they're usually Republican. The Obama part of the Obama-Trump voter was more unusual than the Trump part, but they still are Obama-Trump voters. And this part's important in understanding why Obama-Trump voters are really important and a greater key to winning the 2020 election than turning out new voters. And it's this, Obama-Trump voters are voters. We know they've gone to the polls at least twice if they're Obama-Trump voters. And that's no small thing. If you're trying to get someone to the polls who's never been to the polls, it's a much harder lift than if you want to get someone who actually does vote. Also, if you're an Obama-Obama-Trump voter, meaning you voted for Obama twice and then Trump, you're at the youngest 30 years old and you're probably closer to 50 in age. And once you're 50 in age and you have never voted, the chances are overwhelmingly likely that you're not going to vote. There's one really simple number that might help you decide if it matters more to turn out new voters or to convince voters who have already turned out, and it's this. Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump combined turned out a lot more voters in 2016 than voted in 2012. If the thesis is we got to get more people to the polls, they got more people to the polls, did the Democrats, and they still lost in the Electoral College. The logic of rebuilding the Obama coalition, which is literally what Cornell Belcher said, that logic is clear. That was a winning coalition. Let's do that again. But the Obama coalition involves everyone, every type of person who voted for Obama by definition. And we've just demonstrated that 13% of those then went for Trump. It is logically inconsistent to say we don't need to woo back voters who defected to Trump. We just need to get voters who voted for Obama because a whole bunch of them then voted for Trump. Sorry, this is my exasperated voice. Now, here's the complication. Remember, I told you I'd give you an answer. I hope I did. Got to get those Obama-Trump voters. But now I'm going to lay the complication on you. So far in this debate, as framed by David Brooks, as framed by many never-Trumpers who are in the media, as framed by the former Republican congressman, now Morning Joe host Joe Scarborough, the way to woo Obama-Trump voters is by avoiding overly leftist policies. Here's Joe saying as much after the debate last week. 
If you want the Democrats to defeat Donald Trump, mm-hmm. I'm very concerned by people casually embracing Medicare for all. Because when you drill down into that issue, even among Democrats, and start telling people what that means for them, suddenly it becomes very unpopular. That is something I promise you, Donald Trump and his team, they've already got the quotes from last night. If any of those people are nominees, they will go there tonight. I still don't understand why this Democratic field doesn't say, we passed Obamacare. Right. That was a remarkable achievement. Let's mend it, not end it. Let's keep going in that direction. And they can do that and win the election because Obamacare is extraordinarily popular now because of Donald Trump. But here's the thing. There isn't great evidence that the way to appeal to Obama-Trump voters is necessarily through centrism or moderation. It could be through moderation in policy, but it could be through moderation in personality or just a generally inclusive affect. It seems like it will depend a little bit on not going too far left. But, you know, concepts of left and right have been so screwed and scrambled in the last few years, thanks to Donald Trump, among others. Think about this. If Kamala Harris runs against Trump, she will be to the right of him on some significant criminal justice policies, not the rhetoric, but on the actual policies that they have backed. Kamala Harris is to the right of Trump. But in the end, I just urge you, don't believe a pundit who tells you that the way to win the election is to maximize the excitement among progressives via embracing the most left-leaning policies. I find that the people who most often prescribe that as a political strategy happen to also favor those policies as well. You almost never get, look, I think the Democrats have to go way far left, though it pains me, though I don't support those policies. It's clear that that's the way to win. You never hear that. It's very convenient for the person to say, I want abolition of private insurance, reparations, decriminalization of border crossings. I want all that. And that's also the way to win. How convenient for you. When they say, not only are my policies the best policies to institute as policies, but I'm telling you, they're going to be the inspiration to everyone who's been sitting on the sidelines. Mm-hmm. And what about convincing people who are already in the electorate, who once voted for your party, but then defected? Oh, they're not as crucial? I do not believe that. It is just not true. It is not the case that cautious and effective policies are the key to woo these defectors, however. It also seems to me that Adopting a policy agenda approved by David Brooks, that's not the way to go either. The thing about the never Trump Republicans is that while they're never Trump, they're still Republicans. Their ideal candidate is some Jeb Walker Romney type. You don't need to woo them, but you better realize that not winning back a decent chunk of voters who went for Trump in 2016 is pretty much the same as just not winning. And that's it for today's show. Pierre bien and Daniel Schrader produced the gist, and they hate sausage puns because they are the worst. T.J. Raphael is Slate Podcast's senior producer. Her brother works in the fruits and vegetables section at the AMP, so he's a senior produce him. Well, actually, except when he's stocking the baby corn, then he's a junior produce him. On What Next, which is right now in your feeds, they post every day at 6, they're talking about the murder of the rapper and community activist Nipsey Hussle. The question is, can it bring LA gangs together? That's up next on What Next. So what's the difference between Lot's wife turning into a pillar of salt and an anagram of cat dog's spit? 
ones a spell a pissed god cast the other spells out just podcast and thanks for listening